Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. This passage comes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. And this Sermon on the Mount consists of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Now this, this section of Jesus' teaching is, direct, is directed at the disciples, and by extension, it's directed at the Christian church. So it's not, first of all, um, an ethic that Jesus is giving to the state at large or to the magistrate, but specifically to the disciples and by extension to the New Covenant church. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Please pay careful attention for this is God's word to us. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he again write this word upon our hearts uh, this morning. Please turn also in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing together Lord's Day 37, which consists of question and answers 101 through 102 of our Heidelberg Catechism. As you know, we are uh, considering the Catechism's application exposition of the Ten Commandments, and this Lord's Day is connected to the Third Commandment. Now, I uh, didn't put in there the, the reading of the Third Commandment, but uh, just to uh, recall to mind, the Third Commandment calls us to not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And God says that he will not hold uh, the one who does this guiltless for taking his name in vain. So question, and as always, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. So question 101 asks, but may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? Yes, when the government demands it or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. Question 102 asks, May we also swear by saints or other created things? No, a legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. Well, John, I think uh, Sarah's locked out. Thank you. Um, 
All right, so boys and girls, as a review, uh, what, uh, what are the three main sections of our catechism? Noel? Very good. And what, what section are we in? Guilt, grace, gratitude. Violet? Gratitude, yes. Um, what is true faith? Yes. Marcus? Knowledge, assent, and trust. And what is the content of this faith? Annalise? Apostles' Creed. What happens when we profess this true faith? Ezekiel? Yes, we're granted Christ's righteousness. This is justification. We're justified by faith alone. Uh, where does this faith come from? Annabelle? And what does the Holy Spirit use to create this faith? Annabelle? Yes, the preaching of the word and the sacraments. The Holy Spirit uses the word to create faith, and the Holy Spirit uses both the word and the sacraments to nourish and grow this faith, which, again, boys and girls, is why church is so important. Because what do we do in church? Well, we hear the word preached, we hear the word read, and we also partake and witness the sacraments. Um, now, what are the two keys of the kingdom? Uh, yes, Lonnie. Yes, church discipline and the preaching of God's word. Um, the church has the authority to both affirm and disaffirm one's profession of faith. Uh, the church has been granted the keys of the kingdom. They've been granted authority by Christ himself. Now, uh, we know that the chief motivation for um, um, our life of obedience is gratitude, meaning we are to respond to God's grace in the gospel by living lives of gratitude. Fear and not gratitude is meant to motivate our lives of obedience. Now, boys and girls, uh, what are the two main parts of the Christian life or of our sanctification? Isaiah? Very good, yes. Putting off, putting on. Death, resurrection. Right? That's, that's the life of the Christian. And what is a good work? You remember what a good work is? It proceeds from the internal to the external. Where does it need to proceed from? Adults, we can... We're, uh, heart, of faith. heart of faith, yes. And what do these good works need to conform to? God's law, and what is to be our, our, the goal, the purpose of these good works? The glory of God, yes. So it proceeds from you know, the internal root of faith, uh, conforms to God's law, and is unto the glory of God. And um, obviously the law of God is defined in the Ten Commandments, which is why we're considering the Ten Commandments as a law of gratitude. And boys and girls, what's the first commandment, or a summary of the first commandment? Yes, Marcus? Uh, who we should worship? Good, yes. Uh, we should have um, uh, no other gods uh, before the one true God. And uh, the main question that we're considering there is who we should worship. What about the second commandment? Lise? Annalise? How we should worship, yes. We should not use um, uh, graven images in our worship. And now the third commandment, which I already um, alluded to, speaks to how we should not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. It speaks to the language of worship. Now, if you recall, last time we were together two weeks ago, we uh, looked at uh, the catechism's application of this third commandment, and one thing that I noted is that we bear God's name in baptism. So if you've been baptized, God has placed his name upon you. Baptism is a naming ceremony. And because God has placed his name upon you, you are called 
to represent God well, not only in your speech, but also in your actions. You bear God's name, and therefore you are called to represent God's name well in your speech and in your actions. And so when you conduct yourselves in a way that contradicts the character of God, you are taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. So this commandment touches upon much more than simply cursing or swearing. It touches upon how we live our lives. It touches upon everything that proceeds from our mouth. We are to represent God well in our speech and in our actions. I noted, you know, boys and girls, how you all have a last name. And you did not, you did not choose your last name. You were given a last name. And your last name tells you how you are to live. You are a part of a family, and your family has certain values, principles, rules that you are called to abide by. So your last name tells you how you are to live. It's very practical. Uh, there are certain things that you do and certain things that you don't do because you are a member of your family. You know, if you, say you uh, hit your sibling or you lied to your parents and your mom or dad is coming uh, with discipline and sits you down and they say to you, you know, you're, you're a wit, you're a Wagner, you don't act in that manner. Your, your, your parents are, are saying that you are not representing your family name well. You're contradicting the values and principles of your family. And so it is in the family of God. God has placed his name upon us and we are called to represent him well in our speech, in our conduct, in our actions. And so we're going to keep that theme in mind as we now consider this Lord's Day. And this Lord's Day is specifically about how we are to represent the Lord in whose name we bear in the matter of our speech and specifically in truth-telling. We are to represent the God of all truth by speaking the truth. And that is why this Lord's Day specifically touches upon the issue of oaths and vows. So we are to represent the God of all truth by speaking truth. Now, I'd like us to look at three things this morning as we consider this Lord's Day. Uh, The first point we'll consider is that we are not Anabaptists. Uh, The second point is we are to tell the truth. And third, we are to take our vows seriously. So first, we are not Anabaptists. Now, what this point is all about is why are we considering this issue of oaths and vows? You'll notice when you read the Catechism, this commandment is the only commandment that is given two Lord's Days. Every other commandment is only given one Lord's Day. You might wonder to yourself, why do the authors of our catechism devote two Lord's Days to its exposition of the third commandment? And this, 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 this catechism was originally written so that the church could consider it and preach it and teach it every single year. That's why there's 52 Lord's Days. And so the authors of the catechism thought that this issue of oaths and vows was so important that the church needed to hear a sermon on it every single year. Why? Now, of course, this document is a historical document, so I'd like to just briefly spend some time uh, talking about the historical context that led to the composition of this Lord's Day. Now, in the Reformation, again, this this, this catechism was written in uh, 1563, so a few decades after the, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. In the Reformation, there were four main groups. Uh, there was uh, the Roman Catholics, of course, uh, the Lutherans, the Reformed, and the Anabaptists. Now, the Anabaptists sometimes are referred to as the radical reformers. 
they held to some pretty radical views and radical practices. They adopted, in many instances, a spirit of anarchy. Uh, they also uh, affirmed a common purse, so they didn't think that private individuals had the right to private property. They also embraced many heretical views. They denied the doctrine of the Trinity. They denied justification by faith. They, they affirmed private revelations of the Spirit, and so they called the Reformers ministers of the dead letter because they only affirmed Scripture as God's final authority. Now, in the Reformation, uh, Rome and the Lutherans sometimes will look upon the Reformed churches as being in the same category as the Anabaptists. And so the Reformed in the 16th century were very careful to distinguish themselves from the Anabaptists, from the radical Reformers. In fact, the Belgic Confession, which is our confession of faith, the original purpose behind the Belgic Confession was to convince King Philip II of Spain that Reformed Christians are not Anabaptists. Reformed churches are not radical churches. So in the Belgic Confession's article on the civil government, this is what we read. This is what we confess. On this matter of submitting to civil authorities, we denounce the Anabaptists, other anarchists, and in general, all those who want to reject the authorities and civil officers and to subvert justice by introducing common ownership of goods and corrupting the moral order that God has established among human beings. So one of the things that the Anabaptists objected to was the use of oaths and vows, not just in the church, but in society at large. At this time, in the 16th century, oaths were a fabric of society. So that's why um, the Belgic talks about some of their views seeking to corrupt the moral order that God has established among human beings. So one of the reasons why the Heidelberg addresses oaths and vows and spends a whole Lord's Day on oaths and vows is to distinguish themselves from the radical Reformation, from the Anabaptists. Now, what does that mean for us today? Of course, we don't live in the 16th century. Um, some of us may never have even heard of, of Anabaptists before this. But this is a good reminder that as a Reformed church, we are not a radical church. We embrace historic Christian teaching and practice. We view uh, the church that's come before us as a legitimate authority, not as the supreme authority, not as the final authority. That, of course, is the word of God. But we look to the Christian church from previous ages and generations as a legitimate authority. And so we follow historic Christian teaching and practice. We are not a radical church. Well, now we're going to consider uh, point two and three, and we're going to look at them together, how we are called to represent the God of truth by both telling the truth in all matters of, of speech, in all of our commitments, even our, our most simple and mundane commitments, and how we are called to uh, to take our, our, our vows, our lawful vows and oaths seriously. And here we're going to look specifically at Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this, of course, is the text that we have to consider when we're considering this topic of, of vows and oaths. And as I mentioned before, it's important to understand that Jesus here is, 
is speaking these things in the Sermon on the Mount specifically to the Christian church. He's not first and foremost speaking to the magistrate or speaking to society at large. He's speaking to his disciples, to the church. He's giving the church their ethic. So no matter what we think of Matthew 5, verses 33 and 37, if the magistrate calls you to take an oath, that's a fifth commandment issue. You are to submit to your governing authorities and should take the oath that you are called to take. So this is specifically talking about oaths within the church, oaths among Christians. Well, in these verses, Jesus is doing a couple of things. And the first thing that we see that he's doing is he's telling his disciples not to do what the Pharisees are doing when it comes to the taking of oaths and vows. Now, what were the Pharisees doing at this, this time? Well, the Pharisees were in the habit of swearing by all sorts of things. They would swear by heaven. They would swear by earth. They'd swear by Jerusalem, the great city. They'd swear by the temple. They'd even swear by their own head. The Pharisees thought that because they were not invoking the explicit name of God, then if they didn't feel like keeping these oaths, they didn't have to. There was no real consequence to them breaking these oaths or vows. So, in a sense, they could eat their cake and, and, and have it too. They, you know, they could take an oath and vow, take an oath or a vow, which we all know that if someone comes to you with an oath or a vow, that carries more weight than a simple promise. But yet, if they wanted to get out of that oath or vow, they simply could, could just forget about it, and there was no real consequence for failing to keep their oaths and their vows. And so this is why Jesus says what he says when he says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. That is, do not take an oath either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus is saying, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't take oaths like the Pharisees take oaths. Don't take vows like the Pharisees take vows. They are not men of their word. They intentionally are looking for loopholes so that they don't have to keep their commitments. So Jesus is telling his disciples, don't look to them as a good example of oath-taking and keeping. And this is why in question answer one or two, we see that we are only called to take an oath in, in, the, in the name of God. We are not to do what the Pharisees do and invoke all these other sorts of things. Well, Jesus here is also contrasting to a certain extent the use of oaths, oaths and vows in the Old Covenant to now the use of oaths and vows in the New Covenant. So he is contrasting um, the use of oaths and vows in the Old Covenant to the use of oaths and vows in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, especially among Christians, oaths and vows should be taken much less frequently within the church, again, uh, between us as Christians, than in the Old Covenant. Jesus' point here is that in the New Covenant, we have a greater measure of the Holy Spirit who live after the coming of Christ. We should be a people who are marked by telling the truth. We should be a people who are marked by keeping our commitment, so much so that we don't even need to take an oath. We don't even need to take a vow. We should be men and women of our word. You know, we live in a day and age in which talk is cheap. So often people make commitments and they forget about it. They, 
They don't take those commitments seriously. And Jesus is saying, no, as Christians, part of our distinct witness in this day and age is our ability to tell the truth and to keep our commitments, even very simple commitments. We are to be men and women of uh, of our word. And so Jesus lays down this principle, this general principle in verse 37, when he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Any promise, any commitment, any word that you, sp- you speak, you should keep. That's what Jesus is saying. He wants his disciples to be characterized by truth keeping. Again, so much so that Oaths and vows aren't really even necessary. Now, this is a general principle. Is Jesus saying that we can never take an oath or a vow? Well, he he may be saying this, but he may not be saying this. Oftentimes in Scripture, we come across general principles to which there are exceptions. For instance, if we just go two passages before this, in Matthew 5, verse 32, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So Jesus is giving us there a general principle that the only legitimate ground for divorce is sexual morality. So you read that and you think, well, that that really is the only legitimate ground. If you divorce your wife for any other grounds, then, um, then you commit adultery. However, we know that there's an exception to that general principle found in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says that abandonment is also a legitimate ground for divorce. So, again, general principle to which there's an exception. So when we come to Matthew 5, um, 33 through 37, that same pattern might be at play here. There may be exceptions to this general principle. Furthermore, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, uh, routinely uses hyperbole. So, again, a few passages before this passage, when it comes to lust, Jesus says that, It would be better to gouge out your eye, to cut off your arm, than to struggle with sexual sin and go to hell. Now, he's not literally saying that the way you fight sexual sin is by dismembering your body. It's hyperbole. He's saying, take it seriously. Same way in uh, the passage after this. He'll talk about how we are to give to the one who is needy. We are not to refuse the one who would borrow from us. We are to, if someone takes our tunic, we are to give our cloak as well. Well, again, Jesus isn't literally saying if I ask you to take off your shirt right now, you are to take off your shirt. It's not literally a shirt off your back. Um, there's a, a certain level of hyperbole going on there. And we can all think of many possible scenarios where it wouldn't be wise to give to a needy person or to borrow something that's been requested of us. And so, again, we have to go at what, what's the principle at play there. So we have to keep those two things in mind. It's a general principle to which there may be exceptions, and Jesus routinely uses hyperbole within the Sermon on the Mount. Well, when we keep reading in the New Testament, we see that the Apostle Paul, on at least three occasions, takes an oath or a vow. So, for instance, in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Paul, as an apostle, as he is writing to the church in Rome, says that he prays for this church. He wants the church in Rome to be assured of his prayers, and he calls upon God as a witness to the veracity of his intentions and words. 
Or Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Again, Paul's writing to the Philippian congregation, a congregation that he helped plant in Acts chapter 16. And he wants this congregation to be assured of his care, love, and affection towards them. So much so that he again calls upon God to witness to the veracity of his words. Further yet, we see in 2 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. So Paul here is explaining to the Corinthians why he, he didn't come to Corinth. And he again calls upon God to witness against him to the truthfulness of his intentions, desires, and words. So Paul here clearly seems to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 37 as, yes, a general principle, to which there are exceptions. As he himself invokes uh, uh, an oath on multiple occasions, and when you consider these oaths, these are sort of like him calling to mind his ordination oaths. These things that he speaks to have to do with his office as an apostle, as a minister, to the Gentiles. He tells the church in Rome, God's my witness, how I pray for you. I think about Acts chapter 6. Why, why was the diaconate created? So that the apostles could devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Paul is called to be someone who prays diligently for the churches. Or think of Philippians chapter 1. He says, for God's my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Think of what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 when he, when he calls the, the, the Ephesian elders to care for the church of God that is among them. Paul knows that part of what it means to be apostle, a minister, is to display the affection of Christ towards the churches, his people. Uh, he is also called to visit the churches. So again, these oaths really have to do with his office of an apostle. It's him calling to mind his quote-unquote ordination vows. So again, Paul clearly seems to think that there are exceptions to Jesus' general principle in Matthew chapter 5. So what this teaches us, that 98% of our interactions with fellow Christians within the church should not entail the taking of an oath or a vow. If you tell uh, your fellow church member that you're going to come over on Saturday and help them with yard work, you should not have to swear an oath to God that you'll be there. This is what Jesus means when he says that your yes be yes and your no be no. However, there are certain solemn occasions, occasions of, of, of weight and consequence, in which it is very fitting, very appropriate to take a vow of sorts. Situations such as membership or profession of faith, uh, situations such as baptism or ordination, which is why we follow in this ancient Christian practice of using these ecclesiastical vows. And so when one professes their faith, when one becomes a member, we ask certain questions before God and before the congregation. And if you're a member of a church, you, you are called, by virtue of this third commandment, to take those commitments seriously. Our third membership vow says that you promise to serve the body of Christ. You're called to take that seriously. 
the fourth membership vow, uh, you promise to submit to the, uh, the church, the elders, both in doctrine and in life. If you treat these commitments lightly, you're treating the name of God lightly. That's what the third commandment is telling us. Think of baptism. If Parents, if you presented children uh, to be baptized, you have promised that you will do all that you can to teach your children the Christian faith. That's a promise. That's a valid commitment you've made before God, before the congregation, and you are called to take that seriously. If you treat that lightly, you're taking the third commandment lightly, which is why we encourage uh, uh, all people, but especially families with kids, to be at this service, uh, to be at youth catechism. That's one of the ways in which you can be faithful to that baptismal vow and, and to do family devotions, to talk about the things that we discuss in church in the home. And so it's good for us to reflect upon the vows that we make in, in life. Um, marriage vows. Some of you may have taken vows in terms of your vocation if you're in the military or work certain government jobs. Uh, you're to take these things seriously by virtue of the third commandment. We represent the God of truth by keeping our vows. But furthermore, the third commandment also calls us to represent the God of truth, not just in those few occasions in life where we take a, a vow, but in all the words that we speak, in all the commitments that we make. We're to be a people of our word. And in so doing, we represent the God of truth. Well, this concludes our consideration of of this third commandment, and next week we will move on and consider the fourth commandment and uh, press into some of those questions that I alluded to earlier in, in our